Good morning, everyone. My word, you go back a long way, don't you? Um, it's good to be here. Um, you will gather by the sound of my voice that all has not been well over the last um, few days. In fact, Thursday, I doubted very much whether um, I'd be up here this morning. And I strongly suspect, in fact, no, I know there are at least two people here this morning who, when they saw me, were very relieved because they were wondering whether they were going to be sprung upon um, to deliver a sermon at short notice. But the Lord is good and we're here. One of the benefits of a drop in pitch in my voice, I strongly suspect, I used to sing bass in a gospel quintet many years ago. And I now would think I probably could get back to the bottom E flat that I could sing in those days. Uh, but I'm not going to try and do that. Um, I'm very conscious that um, it's a hard act to follow Steve Lawson and Philip de Courcy, but I'm going to try and do that. Um, I don't know quite how Paul the Apostle got on without PowerPoint, but... Um, we're going to see if we can use PowerPoint this morning. Thanks, man, that's great. Um, most of the folk uh, at OBC know that if I'm given um, an open pulpit, I will almost certainly go to Old Testament, and so that's what I want to do. And I want to try and follow on from Steve Lawson. Remember, he was teaching us from uh, Hebrews chapter 12, and, and it's the passages that... Um, picture the Christian life as a metaphor, a, a, a race, and he strongly suggested that in this race um, we are surrounded in the grandstand by all these people from years and years before who've gone before us. And so what I want to try and do this morning is, is help us see if we can learn from a group in this grandstand. Um, and I'm, so if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn to the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Chronicles. Some of you may have started turning to Malachi, but the, the Hebrew Scriptures are a different order from uh, what we have in our Bibles, but Although it looks as if there are fewer books, in fact, when you analyze it, the content is identical to what we have. It's just the order of a number of them uh, is different. And in fact, Chronicles is the very last one in the Hebrew Scriptures. And so what I want to try and do is just um, look at four of these kings that we have in Chronicles. And... We just need to, I think, help to um, remind ourselves probably what this book is all about. It follows Samuel and Kings in our Bibles. And so the temptation, I think, is because the content is very similar to what we have in Samuel and Kings, is to read it in that context. A better understanding of Chronicles is to associate it with the books that follow, which are Ezra and Nehemiah because it was in all probability written after the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon. Um, and the content, although it repeats a lot of what we have in uh, Samuel and Kings, uh, it really is the focus is for the people who came back from captivity. Um, 586 was when Nebuchadnezzar finally... Um, got rid of the uh, the Jews from Jerusalem. He sacked Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed and the people went into captivity. They were in exile there for almost 70 years. And in due time, uh, the Medo-Persians got rid of the Babylonians and there was that famous decree from Cyrus permitting the Jews to return to Judea and Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt finally dedicated about 515 and so almost exactly 70 years after it was destroyed um, it was back in use again. But many of the Jews who came back with Zerubbabel and later with Ezra 
Um, they'd been born in Babylon. They knew nothing of um, their previous history. Uh, some of them couldn't even speak Hebrew. And so when Ezra, the scribe, uh, got up to speak on one occasion, we actually read that his words had to be translated because these people only understood Aramaic and not Hebrew. And so the chronicler, the, the narrator of this book, perhaps even Ezra himself, uh, puts together a historical and theological narrative to explain this, their story, the people of God, how they got to where they now are, what their history was. If you've tried reading um, through Chronicles, um, right at the start you have a problem because you come across nine solid chapters of names. They just go on and on and on. What on earth are all those names there for? I have a book, a solid book of names. It is it's more than 300 pages. Um, it's called Descendants of Abraham Bussey. And it's got all sorts. Beatrice Watford, who on earth is she? she was born in 1905. Um, George Brown, born in 1878. Why on earth would I have a book of names like this and dates and things? And this Abraham Bussey, born apparently in 1580. My mother's maiden name was Bussey. So these are family. This, this is where I come from. I'm, that's why I've got this book. That's why I enjoy reading about all these strange people who I have never met. And this Abraham Bussey was my nine times great-grandfather. Well, now, if you can go that far back, you have 2,048 nine times great-grandparents. Unfortunately, I don't know his wife's name, so I only know one of the 2,048 nine times great-grandparents. But that's cool. I know one of them. Well, now you can perhaps start putting your, um, you know, these this, these chapters in their context now. These people really didn't have much idea of where they'd come from. And so Ezra, if he was the chronicler, the narrator anyway of Chronicles, is trying to make these people understand their history and sort out their roots and where they came from. And his aim is to remind the people of where they stood in the plans and purposes of God. In John 21, you may remember that Peter is told that he's going to glorify God um, when, by the way that he dies. And um, quite often, believers uh, in the way that they face eternity actually bring glory to God. And so with my family history hat on, this got me thinking about how people who have died are remembered. And quite often they are remembered by epitaphs on their tombs. And so in a moment I'm going to try and suggest some epitaphs for these four kings. But epitaphs sometimes have been used to, um, in, a, in a humorous way, it's said that uh, Spike Milligan wanted his epitaph to read, I told you I was sick. Um, there's uh, a couple of others that I thought were quite good. Here is this guy who <laughs> I thought it was interesting, the second fastest gun in, yeah, one uh, doesn't need to understand any more about that. And perhaps one of my favourites, uh, here, <laughs> dear old Fred, <laughs> big rock fell on his head. That's a bit like how I feel at the moment. Anyway, um, what I'm going to suggest, though, is that we can look at epitaphs for life, not the lives of the people who've died, but lives for, you know, how it can affect our lives. Um, Let's just put um, the chapters that I want to look at in Second Chronicles into their perspective. Um, First Chronicles... Uh, has to do with um, 
Uh, we've got an account of David's reign in First Chronicles, and then first part of Second Chronicles, we have the reign of Solomon, um, culminating, of course, in the building and the dedication of the temple. But after uh, Solomon's death, you may remember that the United Kingdom split into two. Uh, the Northern Kingdom, ten tribes, uh, was then most often called Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin uh, was quite often called Judah. And Second Chronicles from chapter um, 14 onwards uh, really has to do with the kings, actually one queen. Uh, there were 19 kings and one queen in the southern kingdom of Judah. Very little at all in Chronicles is said of the northern kingdom, not because it didn't exist, but the purpose of the chronicler was to tell the Jews, particularly from Judah, what their history was. And for each of these 19 kings and one queen, there's a is usually a statement by the narrator that gives the ruler a pass or a fail mark. And it's usually something like this. We either read he did what was good or we read he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the criterion for a pass mark was not how successful they'd been militarily. It wasn't how wealthy they were. It wasn't um, how good they'd been in preserving um, their kingdom's borders. Uh, It was entirely how they had kept the Torah, how, the, how their rule had married up with what God had wanted them to do. Very similar for us, in fact, isn't it? Our desire, I'm sure, should be that um, our epitaph, if we wanted one, should be something like, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not how many degrees we got. It's not... Um, how clever all our kids were. Our desire should be how well we had lived for our Saviour. Only eight of these 20 rulers got a pass mark, which tells you something. None of the Northern Kingdom's uh, rulers got a pass mark. They all failed, Um, despite some very successful guys like Omri, Ahab's father, was a great king in a lot of ways, but uh, he did not meet God's criterion, and so he still failed. Of these eight, four of these guys get more space in Chronicles than they get in Kings, and so it seems to me that they probably uh, get that extra coverage for a particular reason. And so I want to look at those four, and the first one is this man Asa in Second Chronicles 14. So after all that introduction, if you'd like to turn to Second Chronicles 14, we'll start looking at this man Asa. There's much in his story that's commendable. Uh, he removed a lot of the idolatrous pillars and deities, and we read uh, chapter 14, verse 4, he commanded Judah so, to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to keep the law and the commandments. He strengthened the country militarily. There's a wonderfully insightful comment from him. Uh, verse 7, uh, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. Um, there was a successful battle uh, against a huge army um, and we're told that they were broken before the Lord and his army, verse 13. Um, there's some very large numbers mentioned, but the whole point, I think, of the story is to demonstrate that uh, the Judeans were um, severely outnumbered. Um, but the point is that uh, God was able to bring about a victory. And uh, Asa expresses his confidence in the Lord. Verse 11, we rely on you and in your name we have come against this multitude. And when we look at uh, chapter 15, uh, there's a visit from a prophet named Azariah. And after listening to him, Asa seems to move up a gear. Uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 8 
Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took Judah and Benjamin from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. I'm suggesting that uh, an epitaph of Asa might be that he was influential in his walk with the Lord. When people saw what sort of life he was living, they too wanted to uh, follow uh, Asa's God as well. What about you and me? Uh, Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 have several references to the Christian's walk. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says that we should walk worthily. Uh, And the context is clearly of the family of God because he goes on to say we must be patient, gentle, and humble with one another. We also need to walk wisely, Paul says. Chapter 4, verse 17 tells us not to walk the way the Gentiles do. And here the reference, I think, is to how our lives should be out in the community. Not only are we to we walk appropriately uh, with each other as Christians, we are expected to walk honourably before the Lord as we um, deal with people outside the church. Um, chapter 5.15, Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Um, Verse 8 of chapter 5, Paul says that we should be walking as children of light. In other words, our beliefs should dictate our behaviour. We say we are Christians, and so because of that, the way that we um, go about our business, not just the way we pray, the way we read our Bibles, but the way we pay our taxes, the way we drive our cars. Oh, that's getting a bit challenging, isn't it? But you, you get the... Get the picture. We are expected to walk um, as Christians. We are expected to walk wisely and walk as children of light. We might have expected after all this good stuff with Asa that um, the end of Asa's reign would be as successful as the beginning. But rather than continuing to rely on the Lord, uh, he enlisted the support of the Syrians when he was threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel. In chapter 16 of Second Chronicles, we read this. Asa brought out, verse 2, Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, or Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I've sent you silver and gold, Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. Asa was promptly denounced by a prophet. And we read uh, verse 10 of chapter 16. Um, Then Asa was angry with the seer. And so what I'm suggesting is that Asa had a weakness and his weakness was anger. Remember that um, Steve Lawson, uh, in reading Hebrews 12, uh, after it talks about us running with patience, the race that is set before us, it says that we should put aside every encumbrance and the sin which bedevils us. And the difficulty is that you and I, even though we are Christians, even though the Lord has done a work of grace in our hearts, we still have sinful natures and we can trip ourselves up in so many ways. The four guys that we're looking at this morning all had weaknesses. I strongly suspect that you are like me and that you have at least the occasional weakness. In Asa's case, it was clearly anger. And the sad thing is that verse 12 of chapter 16 says, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became became diseased in his feet. 
His disease was severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And the irony is, here's someone who walked well before the Lord, now unable to walk, all because of this sin of anger in his life. What's your default and mine when sudden pressures come? What's our default reaction? Um, Do we seek the Lord in prayer? Do we try and sort it out on our own? Um, God's given us this one and a half kilos of grey matter that we have between our ears for a reason. Um, But he expects us to use it and he also delights in guiding us through each day as we communicate with him in prayer. And um, Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. But even if we are generally fairly phlegmatic by nature, we can. it's still, well, maybe you don't find this, it's still easy to react instantly in an angry way. We might be driving home from church this morning and suddenly someone cuts us off uh, in front of us with a car and we immediately blast the horn and raise our fist or shout or do something like that and lose our sanctification uh, in an instant. Maybe round the meal table uh, with family we're talking. Someone says something that we take the wrong way and we react with an angry outburst and say things that really we wish we hadn't said. It's so easy to react instantly. Um, again, we need advice from the book of Proverbs. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it's his glory to overlook offence. So that's Asa. Anyway, I'm going to look at his son, Jehoshaphat, one of my favourite Old Testament characters. I have one or two. Another one is Amos the prophet, um, but hey, we haven't got time to look at Amos this morning, maybe another time. But Jehoshaphat was a great guy. I, I enjoy him, I think, because he did stupid things, and I find that I do stupid things. Um, and so he and I have got a certain amount of um, connection, I think. Right at the start of his reign, he took after the earlier days of his father Asa and the chronicler has some great things to say about him. Uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days, did not seek the Baals but sought the God of his father, followed his commandments, did not act as Israel did. So the Lord established the kingdom in his control And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. And then there is this wonderful verse, uh, the next verse. Um, I think NIV has, it it says, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Uh, My version here, New American, uh, I like particularly. um, He took great pride in the ways of the Lord. What a magnificent epitaph to have, Um, to be able to be remembered as someone who uh, took pride in God's ways. Um, As you read through the story of Jehoshaphat, there are um, numerous examples of how the ways of the Lord dictated this king's actions. If he was to lead God's people appropriately, uh, they needed to be taught the things of God. And so that's precisely what happened. Um, Verse 7 of chapter 17. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials, and there's a number of names that I won't read there, to teach in the cities of Judah, and with them the Levites, and there's another number of names there, um, and with them Elishama and Jehoram the priests, and they taught in Judah, verse 9, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went throughout all the cities of Judah, and taught among the people. And of course, one of the best ways of being able to encourage the nation to follow godly principles was to demonstrate those principles himself, and Jehoshaphat did exactly that. Chapter 20, um, 
has a marvelous example. Judah is facing an invasion from the southeast. There are um, the enemies, the uh, um, military from Ammon and from Moab and Edom have apparently got across the Dead Sea and they are massing on the western shore of the Dead Sea. They're at uh, what is called the Ascent of Ziz. It's a way up into the hill country of Judah and they're eventually going to arrive in Judah through the town of Tekoa which happens to be uh, where the prophet Amos was born but that's just by the way. But Jehoshaphat gets this message that here, look, these guys, there's a large number of them, they're coming to invade. So what do we read happening? Uh, Chapter 20, verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heavens? Are you not the ruler over all kingdoms? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. And you can read through his prayer there. It's magnificent as he uh, trusts in God. He prays in front of the assembled people there. And then in verse 12, he, there's this ringing, um, triumphant prayer of faith. The army, the enemies are still coming, but this is great from Jehoshaphat. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And as a result of this prayer, Uh, God sent a prophet who told the people the Lord had got everything in hand, as he always does have, despite what we might think. Uh, And he said, you'll not need, this is uh, first part of verse 17, you'll not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. And then uh, Josh again demonstrated openly his faith. He was he led the people in worship. Verse 18, so the army is still coming. Um, he's heard that apparently they're not going to have to fight. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshipping the Lord. And the Levites from the sons of the Korathites and of the sons of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. They were praising God for a victory that had not yet taken place. Tremendous stuff uh, in anticipation of what God had promised he would do. It's important that your ways and mine uh, reflect the fact that we belong to Christ. We've already mentioned this, not just because there are many passages that mention the love that we have to have for one another, Um, John chapter 13 mentions that we should show forgiveness to one another, Colossians 3. uh, We should bear one another's burdens, uh, Galatians 6. But as followers of Christ, we can also influence people outside the church. And in John 13, there's that wonderful verse. uh, The Lord Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Have you ever realized that the way we treat each other has an evangelistic focus? People outside the church are supposed to be able to see the way that we treat one another and therefore they become attracted to the God that we say we follow and believe. Uh, Peter in his uh, first letter tells us something similar that our behavior can win belief. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Point Peter is making is that men and women may slander us for our godly lives, but when the grace of God visits their hearts um, and they respond with saving faith, they'll remember the example that we had we had been before them. 
So how courageous are we in the ways of the Lord? Sadly, um, good King Jehoshaphat let himself down uh, at a couple of points anyway. Um, In chapter 18, uh, verse 1, he did a very stupid thing. Uh, We actually read that uh, he had great riches and honour, which we've mentioned already, but then we're told he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. That was not a good idea. And the, as you read through the story later, that's going to have all sorts of bad implications. Jehoshaphat married his son Jehoram to Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And Athaliah was not a nice lady. And after Jehoshaphat died, um, she and her husband uh, took things into their hands in a, and undid a lot of the good that Jehoshaphat had done. And when her husband died, Athaliah assumed the throne and things got, you know, they got even worse. But that's one thing that Jehoshaphat did that was silly. But uh, chapter 18 um, also describes a military exercise. Um, Ahab asked Jehoshaphat to join him. And Jehoshaphat said, good idea. I'm with you. You know, my army is with your your army. Let's go get this thing done. And then this is one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament because I'm sure God's got a sense of humor. Um, Ahab said, look, I've got a good scheme as we go into this battle. I'm going to disguise myself. But why don't you put all your kingly robes on and we'll go into battle that way? And you would have thought, Jehoshaphat would have thought, oh, hang on a moment, um, is that wise? Won't everyone then realize that I'm the king? He says to Ahab, good idea, why don't we do that? And so off they go into the battle and of course uh, the enemy commander had said, look, the only guy we really need to get is the king. So if we can find him and kill him, job's done. Of course, who do they start aiming for? The guy with all the robes on. And we do read in uh, Chronicles that Jehoshaphat cried to the Lord and God was merciful and, and saved him. The other thing I think so good in the story is that you read that there is a um, an archer in the enemy forces who um, only had apparently one arrow left. And one wonders whether he'd been told by his commander, don't you dare come back with any arrows left in your arsenal. You need to use all of them. So he thought, well, how am I going to use this one arrow? I, I, I'll just shoot it up in the air. And so that's what he did. Would you believe that arrow is the one that landed in a chink in Ahab's armor and killed him? We need to realize, don't we, that God has got an inexhaustible range of ways that he can get his will done, even using a stray arrow, because he had already determined that Ahab was to die. That's really, by the way, the point I want to make now is that um, Jehoshaphat, as we've said, got in deeper than he attended. At, at the end, after being miraculously rescued by God, a prophet is sent to tell him, this is chapter 19, verse 2, we actually read, um, Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on you? Um, the problem I'm suggesting with Jehoshaphat was he had divided loyalties. We need to be on our guard because it's easy to let our standards down and before we know it, uh, our sanctification is gone, our witness is shot. What did Paul say about Demas at the end of Colossians? We read that Demas was part of Paul's inner circle along with Luke. But in Second Timothy 4, as Paul is about to be martyred, he says to Timothy, um, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Do we take pride in the ways of the Lord or allow ourselves to be pressured 
with the ways of the world. It is easy to get sucked in to what uh, quite often in our culture is uh, counter-Christian and we need to watch ourselves very carefully. Need to hurry on. The next um, guy I want to look at is Hezekiah. So if you'd like to turn over to chapter 29 of Second Chronicles. Um, unlike uh, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah did not have a good role model for a father. Ahaz, uh, his father, was certainly no God follower. If you read in Second uh, Chronicles 28, Verse 21, Ahaz took a portion of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king, gave it to the king of Assyria, did not help him. Now in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Uh, and he carried, it goes from bad to worse. Then we read in verse 24, he closed the doors of the house of the Lord made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. And that's it. The rest of his acts from first to last. So Ahaz slept with his fathers. They buried him in the city in Jerusalem. They did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So that's the background to... Hezekiah starting his reign. Um, the wonderful message of scripture is that our background really has no uh, part in our final destiny. I'm so grateful to God for being brought up in a Christian home. Uh, my dear late wife did not have that um, privilege and yet both I and she had to come to a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. The fact that I had a Christian mum and dad made no difference in the eyes of God. God has children. He does not have grandchildren. And so I had to become a child of God, as did my wife. And, of course, the, the key, of course, as the Lord Jesus explained to Nicodemus, um, it's not our birth that's important, it's our new birth. And he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But in verse 2 of chapter 29, despite all the difficulties, we read that Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And now if you're faced with the country and the state that it was, what probably would have been your first uh, idea to do. Perhaps um, the idea would be to, you know, because the army had been defeated a few times, maybe um, you should reorganize the military. Um, we read that Ahaz had looted all the coffers to try and bribe the Assyrians, and that hadn't helped. So maybe the best idea would be to replenish the treasury. What do we read that Hezekiah did? We actually read in verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And so I think we can suggest that um, an epitaph for Hezekiah would be that he was prompt in his worship of the Lord. How important is worship in your life and in mine? Um, we read a lot about what then went on in the temple. And of course, today, uh, we don't have a physical temple. This building is not a temple. Um, but as Steve Lawson was explaining last weekend, um, we are associated with the temple. Uh, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, has there been neglect in your temple and mine? Um, is there accumulated rubbish that needs to be cleaned out as had to happen in the physical temple in Hezekiah's day so that worship could be reinstituted? Um, do we need to be set apart for God again so that our worship can continue unhindered? God is seeking worshippers. Lord Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, um, that we need to worship God in spirit and in truth. 
Peter, again in his first letter, said we're being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Worship then, as it was for Hezekiah, should be a top priority for us as individuals and as a church. And after re-establishing worship, um, Hezekiah gets this wonderful stamp of approval, uh, chapter 31, uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. Every work he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. So things are going really well with Hezekiah. However, Unfortunately, there is a but. Um, The problem seems to have been that maybe the last couple of words in that that quote, these words, and prospered, um, because we read uh, verse 24 of chapter 32, we're told that Hezekiah became mortally ill and he prayed to the Lord. And we actually read a little bit more about that in the the book of Kings. but uh, we actually find here that um, something else happened. Um, we know that God promised him uh, 15 extra years as a result of his prayer to God because God had basically said, you're going to die, and Hezekiah said, please, not yet. So God said, okay, I'll give you another 15 years and gave him a miraculous sign. don't know how it happened, um, that's always the case with miracles. That's the definition of a miracle. Um, apparently the shadow um, retreated some way, um, but it was definitely uh, a sign for Hezekiah. But we learn in verse 25 of chapter 32, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. And so my suggesting is that Hezekiah's particular weakness was his pride because we then read, therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. It seems as if the context for this was possibly a visit from a Babylonian emissary that we read about in Kings and Hezekiah showed off all his treasures. Uh, The Assyrians were still the world power to be feared at the time but Babylon was beginning to um, to get up ahead of steam and someone from Babylon came and Hezekiah showed him all his treasury um, and we can now surmise that Hezekiah could well have boasted of sort of how good he'd been and uh, how clever he was to get all this wealth. What about you and me? Is pride ever a problem? What does Proverbs say? Pride goes before, actually, we normally say pride goes before a fall. That's a misquotation. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, but the sense is still the same. And the opposite of pride is humility. And the amazing thing about humility um, is that it's the only thing that once you know you've got it, you've lost it. Um, And dear old Hezekiah Uh, obviously suffered from pride. We need to watch out uh, if we ever catch ourselves saying something like, wow, that's God got that sin licked once and for all. Be very, very careful. In Hezekiah's case, uh, normal service was resumed quite quickly and we read that Hezekiah humbled himself, verse 26 to 32, uh, he humbled himself for the pride of his heart. And so God's judgment actually was postponed. And so finally, um, I'm suggesting we turn to uh, chapter 34 and look briefly at King Josiah. Um, He had a dreadful family legacy, 57 years of almost uninterrupted evil uh, from his father and grandfather. But as you read um, verses in chapter 34, verse 1, he was eight years old when he became king reigned 31 years, he did right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David, did not, turn, did not turn aside to the right or the left. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
sounds as if it's very similar to what we would call uh, having a conversion experience today. He was clearly very zealous for God, set about instituting a series of wide-ranging reforms. You can read those in verses 3 through 7. Does all sorts of things like tearing down altars and getting rid of idols and things, uh, really getting into things in a big way. And then a very significant event occurred. Um, verse 8 of chapter 34, in the 18th year of his reign, when he purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Maasiah, an official of the city, and Joah the son of Joahaz the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And then in verse 14, when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. It's amazing to think, isn't it, that probably over not much more than 60 years, the book of the law of the Lord had been lost. Um, so dark and dismal had been the years before Josiah's uh, coming on the scene. Um, we might think that from what we've read already that Josiah had already got his act together um, but the reading of the word of God has an, a further immediate effect uh, verse 19 came about when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes and later uh, when Huldah the prophetess um, praises him uh, for his tenderness of heart it, it's clear that the word of God had had a huge effect in his life and so I think we can suggest that he was motivated by the word of the Lord it's fine to um, live as uh, Christianly as we possibly can but unless we base our lives on what God has said in his word it's not really going to get us very far how important is the word of the Lord to you and me on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe you came to faith in Christ a number of years ago, but the Bible has now been effectively lost. Maybe it's on a shelf somewhere gathering dust. The author of Psalm 119 has, in it, remember there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. At least 170 of those verses have to do with God's word doesn't always say the word of the Lord it might use judgment or commandment or law um, but it's they're all synonyms for the word of God Here, here's just a select few of the verses your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path that's verse 105 how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word it's verse 9 I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you verse 11 oh how I love your law it is my meditation all the day verse 97 let's make sure that we're seeking to have the word of God as our daily guide and source of strength then very quickly unfortunately even dear old uh, King Josiah had a weakness and at the end of chapter 35 um, What's happening is that Josiah um, decided um, Pharaoh Necho um, was coming from Egypt up through um, Judah and Israel on his way to support the Assyrians uh, in their battle against the Babylonians. And Josiah had obviously decided that Babylon was uh, the way to go. And so he didn't like the idea of the Assyrians getting any support. And so he went out to try and stop Pharaoh Necho from uh, going any further. And we read in verse uh, 22, uh, verse 22, well, verse 21, Necho sent messengers to him saying, what have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me that he may not destroy you. Strange, isn't it? It certainly seems as if God was using a pagan ruler to actually um, give his word to Josiah. But we read verse 22. Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, 
but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. And so my suggestion is that um, Josiah's weakness was in fact disobedience. This is what one commentator says. Quite clearly, Pharaoh's word to Josiah to turn back was from the Lord. Probably the writer included this event in his narrative because Josiah came closer to the Davidic ideal than any other king since Solomon. Yet he too was disobedient to God. Thus David's greatest son was yet to come. When he comes back to the earth, he will win the battle that will be raging at the very place where Josiah died, the plain of Megiddo, i.e. Armageddon, literally the mountain of Megiddo. Unfortunately, as so often is the case, if only Josiah had been prepared to wait, um, he wouldn't have needed to get involved because um, uh, Necho and the Assyrians were dealt to by the Babylonians, not completely, but four or five years later at the Battle of Carchemish, um, Babylon was absolutely um, superior and that the Assyrians were dealt a mortal blow, and the Egyptians too. And so if only Josiah had waited, all would have been right. Um, four kings, each demonstrating strengths that could legitimately appear as epitaphs on their tombstones, but who each exhibited weaknesses, which, if we're honest, I think we would say we all face. We need to be encouraged by their faith and not enticed by their failures. An appropriate quote, which actually is on your uh, news bulletin uh, to finish with. Um, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, What an amazing book written over so many years by so many human authors, and yet we believe under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, there is one overriding story that goes from the first chapter of Genesis through to the last chapter of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan and you are working through that plan to restore everything to yourself. You planned a Redeemer way back In Genesis, after Adam and Eve fell, we thank you that we have celebrated this morning the arrival and the sacrifice of that amazing Redeemer, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. Uh, He's now our risen, glorified Lord Jesus. And one day we believe, as we've just mentioned, he's going to return. And there is going to be a great consummation at the end of the ages, and we look forward to that day. But until then, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives that are honouring to you and that demonstrate by the way that we live that we belong to you. Um, Help us, we pray, as we bring our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.